Hello, and welcome to Learning from Nature, the biomimicry podcast with me, your host, Lily Ehrman. Thanks for tuning in today, wherever you are. Here in the front range of the Rocky Mountains, the trees have leaves again, flowers are popping up, and the birds are becoming more active. It's truly a beautiful transition. In this episode, we will be exploring how does nature communicate and make decisions. I have the pleasure of talking with Mr. Ebenezer Wakina about his biomimicry work at the intersection of wild dog communication and their democratic voting system of sneezes and policymaking in our own government. Ebenezer has over 13 years of experience working with more than 30 organizations across multiple sectors. He is the founder of Policy Shapers, a civic tech startup that empowers young people with the knowledge, skills, and tools they need to engage with public policy. He also works as campaign strategist at change.org, helping citizens build social movements reaching over 3 million users in Nigeria. Mr. Wakina is a World Economic Forum expert, senior category judge of the Queen's Commonwealth Essay Competition, the world's oldest international writing competition for schools, and international judge of the Association for International Broadcasting Awards based in London. Ebenezer is also a trustee of the Sickle Cell Awareness and Health Foundation, a pioneer member of the British Council's UK Africa Youth Advisory Board, and a founding member of the Open Government Youth Collective. He's currently leading the hashtag ReformIELTS campaign, which seeks to end the corrupt practice of mandating Anglo-Africans to write English proficiency tests while seeking study or work opportunities abroad. This neo-colonial practice currently costs the African continent more than $10 million annually. So far, the campaign has mobilized over 80,000 supporters and influenced policy change in 21 universities around the world. Ebenezer is a Mandela Washington Fellow, Civic Hive Fellow, Bridge Fellow, and GIJN Fellow. He's also the winner of the first ever Sound City Africa MVP Award for Community Development, the Royal African Youth Leadership Award, and the NESG Exceptional Leadership Award, to mention a few. Mr. Wakina is an alumnus of the International Institute of Journalism, Abuja, the London School of Journalism. Harvard Kennedy School, and the Stanford Center for Professional Development. As you can probably tell from his amazing background, this is a really wonderful conversation and will get you thinking about policy and democracy in a new way. It's also a testament to how broad biomimicry applications can be. Learning from nature can be integrated anywhere across sectors to help us create a better future. Let's hop on in. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Can you please introduce yourself? Thank you. Um, thanks. Thanks a lot for, for having me. Uh, my name is Ebenezer Wikina. Um, I'm a Nigerian public policy specialist, but my my career, just as you read, you know, spans across media, youth development, and you know, quite quite a lot of work within the social movement space. I I think I. Well, I won't say stumbled on biomimicry, but like I think I got to learn about biomimicry in in 2011. You know, there's a BBC. So back back in the day, I used to be like a huge like BBC radio fan. So mm-hmm. I listened to like shows on on the BBC. There was this episode of the Forum. Is a is a show on the yeah. BBC where they where they talked about biomimicry. And it was so cool, you know, just hearing about, you know, ideas from like shark skin and, you know, the mm-hmm. um, the the kingfisher, you know, just hearing all of those things just sounded really cool. I was like, oh, this this sounds very, very different. Right. And I've I've always been fascinated by the natural world. 
So I think just jumping on Google that, that day, just finding out all the examples out there, I just thought, you know, I really love to do this, you know, in the, in the future. So this was far back 2011. And I only got a chance to do a, a biomimicry program. I mean, I did quite a number of online programs, right? Like free mm-hmm. online courses just to learn more about it. But I think in, in, in 2021, I got a chance to um, do, do a pr- practitioner's program, like a formal program. Um, with Len Biomimicry, um, Claire Claire Janish, I'm sadly who's who's late now. Um, she she convinced me over and over, you know, to to get on the get on the program. You know, she's one of the evangelists, right? Always trying to get people to to get on. And you know, I was I was lucky to get a huge um, funding support from 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 the institution, and just getting on the program learning a bit more about biomimicry beyond just the surface, you know, imitates mm-hmm. the idea, just learning about the, you know, the entire process just got me really, really inspired. And that's, that's actually where this, um, uh, you know, projects on trying to mimic the African wild dogs came about. But, but yeah, I've been really interested in biomimicry, especially applying biomimicry to like governance and communication and all of the things where, you know, the kind of work that I do as, as a media person, someone who works in media and communications, how, how do we apply it to that? Apply it to like social structures. So during like Black Lives Matter, I I, I try to write something around um, how we could imitate Argentine mm-hmm. ants, you know, seeing how they're able to do a lot of, um, despite like, even when they have different ants and colonies, right? For the Argentine ants, even if there's a colony in, in Brazil and another colony in Nigeria, you bring all of them together in one space, they are able to identify that this is still at the design ants, even though it's from a different different country. So I was just thinking of ways we could apply that to our own like civil relations and stuff like that. So that's a quick uh, summary about me um, and awesome. and my experience with biomimicry. Yeah. And I think it's super exciting too, because a lot of us, um, you know, who are in the field and folks who are just joining the field, oftentimes gravitate towards the area of biomimicry that's very form focused or process focused. And I think that's useful and empowering and gets people excited. But this space that you're in of understanding systems and communication and maybe a little bit more nuanced applications is super exciting. So if you wouldn't mind, can you explain a little bit more? Like what was your project for that learned biomimicry practitioner program? Yes, sure, sure. Um so the the project has a name. <laughs> we we gave it a fancy name. It's called the 10-3 or 10 ratio 3 voting system. So I was just looking generally, right, at ways we could apply biomimicry to decision making, you know, just searching through ask, ask nature, trying to understand what are the various ways, you know, nature, how, how does nature make decisions? You know, how does nature, how do ant colonies make decisions? I kept searching various, you know, organisms, trying to understand. And just around that time, um, the UN was having the climate change conference. It's called the COP, mm-hmm. the COP conference. And, you know, usually like during COP events, there's so much anticipation. People are excited to go. But, you know, like consistently, always at the end of the of the conference, people often feel mm-hmm. like depressed, you know. It's almost like the superpowers are not able to like, come, come to an agreement. Mm-hmm. So there's so much like disappointment and everything. So I just kept thinking, what are the ways we could help, you know, make decision making better in that particular space? Sadly, while that thought process was going on, 
you know, the Russia then invaded Ukraine and the mm-hmm. Security Council was then going back and forth on how to how to vote and veto power and everything. And I just thought that, oh, that looks really um that looked like an interesting, you know, scenario to 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 base the idea. So I then started to think of, okay, so how does security council make decisions? And how would another organism in nature make decisions that we better than what we currently do? And how can we apply that? So how do we juxtapose that, you know, side by side? So I then started to, um, I mean, I, of course, through research, stumbled on the African wild dogs. And it just seemed like the perfect match, right? Because we have so many parallels, especially the Security Council itself has so many parallels with the um, with the African wild dogs. Uh, first, the council um, is made up of 15 countries, this UN Security Council. So it's a mix of like dominant and um, permanent and less and temporary con- countries. So the, the countries who come onto the council for um, two-year tenures, they are voted in and then they're, they're made to leave. The mm-hmm. five permanent countries, of course, are you know the superpowers, Russia, China, US, CTC, France, and co. And then you look at the, the wild dogs. The wild dogs also have a mix of dominant and less dominant dogs. So you have a pack of about 154 dogs um, and you know they're 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 dominant directed, but when it comes to decisions around, should we move to eat? Should we stay? Should we rest? You know, when when the pack has to make a collective decision, they don't just allow the dominant dogs to direct them anymore. So it then it then becomes an issue of, you know, having a consensus style of voting that mm. then makes them makes them move forward. Whereas the Security Council, despite having ten um, temporary nations and five five permanent nations. You have, a, you have a scenario where decisions are made only by the permanent, so like permanent nation, the permanent countries, which are the, of course the G, top five, still can veto on a decision. And even if the council has reached the nine votes, which is what is needed to re- arrive at a resolution, if a permanent nation says, no, they just use their veto power and say, no, everything just comes crumbling down, right? So, so I thought, oh, okay. So, so this, this looks interesting, right? And mm-hmm. the dogs don't speak they sneeze right <laughs> that's why also are able to like use use very complicated speech patterns and you know use use words they they just have a sneeze voting system and it, and it seems seems to work really well because they've been using this for so many years right so i looked at it and i just thought okay so this is the perfect way to do so i i, I studied a, a, a bit more you know there's quite a bit of study out there ask nature as well has a lot of re- resources on on african wild dogs and you know, I just found that so in a, in, a, in an African wild dog park. Um, so if if uh, a, a dominant dog, so think of it like a permanent security council member, you know, wants the pack to move. So usually, what African wild dogs do is after every feeding session, they they rest for long periods, and then after after the rest, they then have like what is called like a high power social rally. So they're just like moving around, you know, just mm-hmm. interacting with each other, deciding on what to do next. So if a if a dominant dog says he wants the pack to move to go eat or to, or to go hunt, if the dog initiates a sneeze and there's a minimum of three other sneezes from any other dog, would be a dominant dog, would be a less dominant dog. If they can get three other sneezes, the pack decides to move, right? If a mm-hmm. less dominant dog, initiates a sneeze during the social high power social rally and that less dominant dog can get 10 sneezes in addition to you know his own, his own sneeze the 
pack will decide to move, whether or not dominant dogs in that pack wants to move or not, as far as that 10 is, is able to be got to, you know, then it, it begins to move. So it made, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah. So it's a, it's a court system, it's a democracy, but it still doesn't negate the the social influence of the powerful of the dominant dogs because then they need less number of votes to, to move mm-hmm. but at the same time it still gives like agency and um and a voice sort of to like less dominant dogs because even when you know they initiate something they can make it work whether or not they have the support of the dominant dogs so i thought wow this is <laughs> this is like yeah. this is a discovery <laughs> you know <laughs> so so, you know, of course, we went into true class. There. So we had so many uh, uh, sessions to review review the idea. And yeah, I mean, you just, we, we put it together after so many weeks of just reading, reading and trying to study it more. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how we got the 10-3 voting system. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm envisioning for UNs now we're, we're going to do a sneeze vote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing this big majestic hall with all these world leaders. So how, how is this? <laughs> yeah, like what does this look like when it's applied to our own political voting systems? Yes, yeah, so 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 I mean the idea is that you can have so um we're currently testing. I mean when I say we, so I'm a founder of Policy Shapers. Uh, Policy Shapers is a, it's a civic tech organization that's trying to um you know get young people engaged in public policy, trying to get them to understand how policy works. And you know, inspire them to want to influence policy through like campaigns and like advocacy um movements. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to test this to see if it's possible to even try it for like different kinds of groups, right? So like an association or some just like di- just different groups. But in the UN Security Council context, um the to to implement this in that context first, you'd have to abolish veto power. Because what's what um currently happens is that. You have permanent nations, so you know the, the top five countries having veto power. Veto power means you know when everyone is trying to agree on something, there's some consensus. One of the top five countries can just say no, I don't agree with this. You know, and they use their veto power to cancel the votes. So if you still have that veto power, you continue to you know ruin things, right? So we said can't abolish veto power first. The second step is mm-hmm. that. Currently, like the minimum number of votes required for a resolution is nine on the Security Council of 15 members. We're saying instead of just having one minimum number of votes, share it into two like the wild dogs do, right? So for the permanent countries, if they can get a minimum of seven votes, they are... So if a, if a permanent member raises a resolution, person can get up to seven votes, the resolution passes. If a temporary member raises a resolution and they can get a minimum of 12 votes, resolution passes. Now, why why seven and twelve? There are five permanent countries and ten temporary countries. If you say you want to do five and ten, you would split the council into two, and at at some point you'd have like you know a lot of power versus less power, and then mm-hmm. you, know, you know it becomes very very toxic, right? But if you make it seven and twelve, it means that for the time, even if let's assume a situation where temporary nations are trying to gang up against the permanent nations. They still need two votes from the permanent nations to be able to pass a resolution. And even when permanent nations want to gang up, you know, in quotes, against the temporary nations, they still need two votes from the temporary nations. You know, Mm -hmm. so you leave space for like diplomacy and human interaction and stuff like that, just as the African wild dogs usually usually do. So, yeah, I mean, that's it. And there's one interesting principle too. When the African wild dogs try, so not every, they don't arrive at a quorum at every social rally. So they, so they, they try, and if 
maybe a dominant dog initiates a sneeze and doesn't get two other sneezes, you know, they go back to rest and then come back again and try, mm-hmm. you know. So so they conduct multiple like sneeze voting sessions. And so just like understanding diplomacy as well, one of the suggestions was to conduct multiple sessions as well to arrive at, at right. forum. The the um percentage is that is so 26% of first rallies ended in a in a decision, or 64% of fifth and sixth rallies often arrived at decisions. So it means that the more rallies you have, the more decisions, the more like decision shifts and people get a better understanding of what they want to do. So um, so yeah, so 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 that's that's right. how you apply it to the UN Security Council um setting. So for yeah. for your organization, are you uh, like testing this out with groups. I, I'm curious what that looks like because I think in the biomimicry space, there's a, kind of a big yeah. jump between I'm inspired by something in the biological realm and I want to apply mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. What does that mm-hmm. testing phase look like? Yeah, I mean, so so first, the first thing we did actually was to write to the United Nations um, Security. So the Security Council has a practice and research branch um, and they often like request for like papers and studies you know, just stuff to help make their practices better, right? So we so we wrote to them and shared, you know, our biomimicry idea with them. I'm sure it must have been must have seemed very abstract <laughs> at this at the start. Um, but I think like they, they've been able to look through and they promised to give like a feedback. Um, where we're still looking forward to that feedback. We've been able to also present the idea at a couple of you know sessions where people discuss like UN reforms and UN 2.0. Um, and, and stuff like that. So, so that's from a more UN lens, but from a general voting lens, right? We we currently are in, in touch with an association of professionals in Nigeria. Um, so the association pretty much has like voting sessions for its presidents and for who leads them for the next one year and stuff like that. Okay. And we're and we're trying to look at a group where so the association currently has so it's a homogeneous association right so every voting member has like the same equal rights right mm-hmm. but we're trying to look at a situation where because this this idea would work well in a group that is not really balanced and truly like if you look at things nature or the world things are often not really balanced all of the time right there's often like right. someone with a higher you know social status someone with a higher you know something there's always some something making someone higher right and how how do you then use this to um to make it a level playing field sort of so um so that's what we're we're trying to do we're trying to help the association sort of like m- maybe not introduce an, a hierarchy system but try to vote vote in a different way right and see if it's possible for us to implement this particular style of voting in their forthcoming elections which is sometime in July um and you know so like people who have been previously leaders you know might then be classified under the dominance people and those who are like regular members you know can then be regular and then see we, we see ways where we introduce that into their elections you know just just as a, as a test nothing co- concrete they don't necessarily have to follow that voting style but we think we'll have to test this over and over and over in in, in several groups in several places for several kinds of votings and decision making uh before we can arrive at, a, at an idea whether it's going to work even you know for yeah. a human setting yeah nothing i'm sure it'll cast- take a lot of testing yeah yeah yeah, so so that's that's where we are so far. Uh, you said something that sparked my interest too, because I think it is this translation piece is about like acknowledging that there are uneven power dynamics everywhere in our yes. our human yes. world, and yeah. 
understanding that nature has some strategies for that. I like this idea mm-hmm. of like, you know, you can have dominant members of a group, um, you know, vote yeah. and move forward with something and they need fewer of them, but you can also have more yeah. of the non-dominant vote yeah. and also kind of override the dominance. So there's like the dominance exactly. does come into play, but it's not reliant and it gives others power and empowers them in a different way. Exactly. Um, the non-dominant folks. So I'm I'm really excited by this. I feel like there's a lot of potential, and I'm sure you you would agree. Yeah, yeah, we're we're still we're we're still testing it out, and I, and I hope it will be useful because like you know we just had our elections in in Nigeria. Um, we just finished our presidential elections and our state elections, and there's so much. I mean, voting and democracy as a whole seems like there's a lot of, especially for developing countries, there's a lot of um, arguments on like, oh, this particular tribe is leading more, or this particular party seems to be leading more. You know, there's always that kind of imbalance, power imbalance. So just thinking of ways where we could apply this to maybe not level the playing field totally, but like make it more, give people more agency such that their thoughts, their ideas, you know, whatever it is that they're bringing forward to the collective group, you know, gets more say as opposed to a situation where we just know that okay it's always the top guys who always make decisions and everyone just feels like they have to chicken out all of the time yeah yeah and even here in the in the u.s like our voting systems are so deeply flawed and this could be like applied in different areas different levels Mm -hmm. of that voting system you know i'm thinking even just like city council where we have cities trying to agree on um, policies and regulations and and new development and it's like it takes forever to get yeah. any yeah. decisions made. So I, I also yeah. would like to mention in the biomimicry space, we have kind of very literal applications, you know, the form mm-hmm. of a humpback whale fin, and it's going to be applied mm. to a wind turbine blade. I also yeah. like this space of like, we are inspired by something in nature and the way that something in nature works. And we're yeah. applying it in a somewhat abstract way, right? So like, we know that mm. it works like this, and this is how it could mm. be translated. And that yeah. translated piece is like, we are getting away from the biology, but it's still functioning and still working like exactly. the biology, but in, in the challenge that we care about. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, exactly. and I think yeah, you spoke to this, but I'd like to just expand on it maybe a little bit more of like there, we know that there's challenges in our current way of, of doing things um, yeah. for political systems. What are like one or two challenges for the way that mm-hmm. we currently uh, vote in political systems yeah. that this could mm-hmm. solve? Yeah, I mean, I just think like the, the 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 major challenge is that the I mean, democracy is about the majority, but most times when you have a situation where the minority is not it's not growing as fast enough to catch up with the majority, so growing in the sense that they don't have as much as much influence, society hasn't accepted them as enough, you know. Mm-hmm. So how do you ensure that people who are often considered as minorities, either it's based on their tribe or their orientation? How do you ensure that they have a voice, you know, in a, in a way where the things that they bring forward to the table, you know, are not just discarded as, oh, just one of those groups or, you know, one of those youth groups or when young people or when women, you know, women have, have thought, I mean, one of the things in Nigeria is I've ne- we've never had uh, a female president. Um, we, so we actually have never had a female governor yet. I mean, we're hoping that we're having one of these current elections, but you know, the results are not showing that yet. So how do you ensure that even minority groups when they're um, coming forward for elections and maybe even just coming forward for decision-making generally? So like in, in Nigeria, we have a situation where our budget 
is presented to the to the National Assembly, say like Congress in, in the US. Um, and you know, it's supposed to have like different thoughts and ideas, opinions. People are supposed to like poke holes in it and make sure that you know the final budget, you know, is representative of what everybody wants, and that's how we should spend the federation's money. But it usually never happens. It's often like the majority groups, <laughs> you know, the majority, yep. you know, voices that's you know over overshadow the minority voices so how do we ensure that you know we have more minority representation in decision making i think that's one of the that's a broader way to look at it you know beyond just our voting um through through the ballot but how do we implement this to every level of decision making across governance across organizations you know and stuff like that that's amazing so what are you working on currently? I know you said you mentioned policy shapers. Is there anything else you'd like to share of like some wins you've had recently, something exciting you're working on and anything upcoming that you want to share with folks? Yeah, sure, sure. Um so we're we're doing quite quite a bit of work um with policy shapers around just trying to engage young young people um to be more active citizens. So in the previous in our just our most recently concluded election um, we had 40 million young people registered to, to vote. Nigeria's population is about 200 million. We had 40 million young people registered to vote, 26 million okay. of them. Or I guess yeah, that's a low 20, number. I thought you said 20 million young million. people. <laughs> yeah, no, no, 40, 40 million. So, like, we have a lot of people just being interested in the process, you okay, know, this, okay. especially this, this, past, this past elections. And 26 million of them were students, you know. So it shows that people are not just feeling like, oh, you know, politics is for those older generations. Yeah. It's not my business. You know, we feel like we're getting more young people involved in that process. So last year, we organized something called the Policy Hackathon. So pretty much like a tech hackathon, right? But we made it about policy and ideas and how young people can think of think of themselves as policymakers. And if you're a policymaker, how would you solve this particular issue? Because the truth mm-hmm. is, you know, in a few years, it's the same young people who become leaders of, you know, the various institutions and various and the various organizations, right? So how do you make them to start thinking of themselves as that, and start being solution providers, as opposed to just like complainers, you know, complaining yeah. about the problem, they become part of solving that problem. You know, so we've, we've had quite a bit of that um, engagement. One of our biggest campaigns is called the Reform IELTS campaign. So, so you might not know this, but like when like Africa, so Africa is, when you think about language, Africa is split in two. There's Anglophone Africa and there's Francophone Africa, right? So some bit of Africa speaks French and some bit of Africa speaks English. But generally, Africa is not seen as an English-speaking continent. So despite the fact that Mm -hmm. we've been communicating over the past 30, 40 minutes in in English language, (laughs) when I I try to maybe study in the UK or in the US, um, you know, or even try to like migrate to, to the US or migrate to the UK, I'm made to write an English proficiency test um, that costs almost $300 and the result for the test expires every two years. So if I try to migrate to the US and say within the first two years, I'm not, I'm not so successful. There's a long visa queue, ETC. By the end of the second year, I would have to rewrite the test because according to the system, my English knowledge has expired. So I didn't have to like <laughs> prove again <laughs> that I can, I can speak the same, <laughs> the same language. I know it's ridiculous. So yeah. um, so as, as an organization, we've been pushing the, the campaign. We've been able to mobilize over 80,000 people so far um, through our petitions and conversations. We've had um, active campaigns in Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, um, Malawi, and now just recently Mauritius. Um, and we're just trying to see how we can get 
institutions, especially the UK government, right? Because most of the countries in Africa that are English speaking were colonized by the UK. Right. And the UK, even even though they're like our former colonial masters, they still do not, you know, they set up our systems in English, really. The, uh, most of our indigenous languages are dying, dying away. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can barely speak my indigenous languages because I've been, I, I grew up watching cartoons, what's everything in English, school, church, everywhere is English. Um, they still do not feel like we're good enough. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a thing where we're trying to advocate for that change. The, the good news is so far, um, we've been able to get 21 universities across the world to, to change their admissions policy. And I mean, kudos to the US, a lot of universities in the US and Canada have been very like receptive to the to the to the campaign. They've been willing to, to make make changes. Um, we just had recently um Cornell University come on, not not Eastern University come on. So like there's so many universities who are joining the, the campaign and are joining us. And it's been led by young people, you know, people in That's their amazing. 20s, early 20s, you know, mid 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 20s and we're hopeful that over the next couple of years we'll be able to like gather enough momentum to you know as more universities come on we'll be able to put more pressure on the uk government to officially add nigeria and other anglophone african countries to the majority english-speaking country lists and really points to what you were saying like we can be solution makers and you are like you're empowering these folks and and creating change like real change which is super exciting I think I think I just just like to say thank you for you know for the good work that you're you're doing. Um, I think I wouldn't have been able to get on this cause if I didn't find a program that discussed biomimicry, you know. And I think that there are many people who you would introduce to this field to this kind of thinking. I mean, I think this should be the only way to do science. To be honest, <laughs> you know, yeah, biomimicry should be the only way to design <laughs> to design design the world. I mean, and if you look at like from previous great inventors like. Leonardo da Vinci and all of the folks, like they've always said that nature has been their major source of inspiration, yeah. their major driver, you know. So I think that, you know, just the work you're doing is introducing thousands and millions of people to this. People who would even, who might not even be, be born now, I won't be born in years to come. Yeah. And we just stumble on various episodes, you know, and they'll get to learn about it. So please just keep just keep doing the great work. I think that's, that's, that's what I want to say. Thank you for for putting in all the efforts, you know, to making sure that biomimicry stories are out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I, I hope that this is a space where people can get really inspired, a launching point, so to speak, so they can start their own journeys. Like you have uh, yours with Learn Biomimicry and now all the stuff you're doing. Um, and I, it yeah. was an, an honor and joy to speak to you. And it's been such a pleasure to have this space just to like connect with people all over the world doing this in all very different ways, but all um, very important yeah. ways. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. I I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day and rest of your week. I am so motivated by the work of Ebenezer and hope this episode also brings you inspiration too. If you're ready to dive deeper into the world of biomimicry applications and innovation examples, this is a reminder that you can check out asknature.org, learn biomimicry, biomimicry frontiers, and all the great books where you can explore this practice further. I'll leave you with this quote from Nelson Mandela that I feel is deeply connected to both biomimicry and building our future together. It always seems impossible until it's done.